coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. 30 years of studying peak human performance has taught me, you know, over and over again, we are all capable of so much more than we know. But the reason we don't know is because human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. That was our guest for today, someone who we're honoured and humbled to have on the show, Stephen Kotler. Sponsoring today's episode is caveday.org. Caveday leads daily group focus sessions for a worldwide community over Zoom. Caveday is like a group fitness class for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints, and energizing breaks. Join the world's most focused community today. Not only that, but Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat listeners can sign up for a free seven-day trial and 50% off your first month with promo code SEPAR, S-E-P-R, all capitals, at caveday.org. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Stephen Kotler, 10 times national best-selling author, executive director at the Flow Research Collective, and leading expert in peak performance. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance and flow science. He's the author of nine bestsellers, including The Art of Impossible, his newest book, the Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and has appeared in publications such as Wired, The Wall Street Journal, and The Harvard Business Review. Today, Stephen tells us what his typical day looks like, how dogs compare to humans, and why environmentalism and the cultivation of empathy starts at home. We speak about passion, purpose, and missions in life, the passion recipe, and more curiosity, autonomy and mastery are dug into to drive motivation as part of the ultimate stack. Neurochemistry is unpacked as is filtering, checklists, flow science and a captivating story about a trip to Italy. We all have the tools at our disposal to be peak performers. Stephen helps us understand how we can leverage these. Stephen Kotler, thanks very much for spending your Friday morning with the two of us here over in Ireland. How are you getting on? Uh, well, thank you. How are you guys? Doing okay. We're looking forward to the weekend. This man's off to a rugby match shortly, but um, what's your typical day look like? How are you going to be rolling out a Friday? It's the same day I have every day. I wake up, I write for four hours. I hike my dog through the mountains. I come back. I, I do this kind of work for a couple of hours. I take a nap. I eat lunch. I go get a workout in and then I write till seven or eight at night, get into a sauna and watch some football and go to sleep. <laughs> like that's what I've got to do. Is it true that in preparing for the book behind us, your new book, you did a hundred days skiing consecutively? No, that's for, that's no, no, that's for, uh, it's not for the book behind you. It's for my next book. And I did, uh, it wasn't a hundred, it was 88. I, my goal, I was trying to get to 86, which was double what I had done in any prior season. And I was simultaneously trying to learn how to park ski, which is uh, uh, freestyle skiing. So it's jumps, rail slides, all that stuff, uh, which is supposedly, quote unquote, impossible for anybody over the age of 35 to do and definitely over the age of 50. 
And, but there's a bunch of new kind of learning theory and neuroscience and peak performance aging and all that stuff that says otherwise. And I just decided to run a giant experiment and see how far I could, I could get in a year. Has Kiko ever gotten to skis? Kiko has not gone on skis and his propensity to bite people not <laughs> named Steven or my wife. I can't even bring him into the back country when I go skiing because you rarely go into the back country alone. And I'm worried whoever I'm skiing with, he's going to, they're going to start skiing and he's going to chase them down. And, you know, I'm going to have, you know, he's a 150 pound dog. You don't, you don't want that. It's a big dog. It's a big, <laughs> you don't want that happening to you. And he could run, he, look, he looks like a polar bear and he runs, you know, like a polar bear. So where, where are you in the line between animals, dogs, and humans? We've kind of read some posts about in the past and kind of how they differ. Honestly, I don't think there is a line. Um, and I think the, the trying to draw that line is ludicrous and it justifies here in America, the euthanasia of eight to 20 million dogs a year, depending on how full, full shelters are. And what I mean by that is, and I've written extensively about this in, in small milk, small furry prayer covers a lot of this. If you look at the average dog, and we know, we know this from a significant amount of neuroscience, uh, starting with that book right there, right behind me, Affective Neuroscience by Yak Ponsep. Dogs have all of our, all the same, they share the seven primary emotions that all mammals have. They also have all the same social emotions that humans have, only theirs are more developed than ours. They're better aware socially than humans. Um, they're better at reading social, nonverbal social cues, face reading. They're better at reading humans' faces than humans are. They also have the intelligence, depending on how you're measuring, of between a three and a five-year-old child. And they're also capable of a lot of very, very high-level conceptual thinking. Great book by Douglas Hofstetter, who wrote Go Lesher Bach. The book he wrote after that is called Surfaces and Essences. And it's about analogy as the primary driver of human thinking and human intelligence. And towards the end of the book, he spends a considerable amount of time talking about all the analogies that your dogs can think in. And there's 60, 70, these are, these are higher, this is higher level cognition. So essentially, by saying there's a line, I don't know what you're drawing the line with, but if you're measuring by consciousness, emotions, sensitivity to pain, intelligence, empathy, all the so-called vaulted human emotions, willingness to take care of the sick and the old, like all that stuff, everything we value, um, dogs either they, they're performing the same as kids or they're performing better. So I always tell people where they're like, oh, I have to take my dog to a shelter. I say, well, 90% of dogs that get dropped off at shelters are euthanized. And would you take your three-year-old child to the shelter when you were tired of them? So like, that's what you're doing. No, absolutely no difference by any measuring stick, any rational person would use. What has to happen? And what's the, the main drivers behind us not giving that perspective to animals? I know you're doing great work. I, I, so I'm an advocate for what I would call empathy for all, which is empathy for all animals, plants, and ecosystems. Um, and whether one of the, there are a couple of real big reasons. So you asked what can be done. And it's really funny. I always say uh, environmentalism starts at home and it most likely starts with the, like the plants in our gardens and the animals in our lives. And the reason is quite simply this, really basic neuroscience says, hey, the brain takes in a 
ton of information every second. It's too much for the brain to process. So we filter huge amounts of data out of our brain just to live in the real world every second. It's a use it and lose it thing. So one of the reasons most eco-psychologists, psychologists who study the relationship between humans and the natural world believe that we're in the middle of a giant environmental crisis is when you live in boxes and you stare at boxes and that's your day, the brain will naturally start to filter out all those things that don't impact your survival like the natural world. The reason I say empathy starts at home and starts with the plants and animals in our lives is to kind of cultivate empathy. Uh, I'll give you a simple example from my life. So my wife and I run an animal sanctuary, do hospice care and special needs care. And when we first started doing this work, I had shifted over. I'd been working with humans and I started working with animals instead. And we work with sort of worst case scenarios. So we worked with a lot of feral animals. I would get bit all the time. We luckily worked mostly with small dogs with big problems, but still I would get bit. My wife would get bit. I would get barked at. A lot of these dogs had emotional issues and really hated men because they'd been tortured by men. So I'd like, I would get bit, I'd get chased. I don't like literally like I'd walk to my office in the morning and this would happen. I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be barked at, you know, on a good day when you're laughing about it, it's funny, but on a bad day when I'm, you know, pissed off and suddenly a dog bites my ankle or I'm hungry or I'm tired or right. Like the urge to kill that dog is very real, like to get really bad. And I started thinking about the dogs in my life as if they were my family. So when one of my dogs had a nutty, I was like, okay, well, if my brother was having the same nutty, what would I do? Right? <laughs> like, what would I do if that was my brother? And that was the sort of cognitive shift. Once I started thinking that way, it changed, it literally changed something inside and unlocked an entire new level of empathy. And here was the interesting thing that happened by, and this is what's worth pointing out. So until that point, my wife has been doing dog rescue for 15, 20 years, and she is a like a world-renowned diagnostician for canine ailments and whatever. And she would see things in the dogs. You know, she'd be like, well, Salty's obviously, you know, a little mouth that perish and he needs a dental and he's got bacteria load. And that's, and like, she would, like, I thought she was making shit up for years, <laughs> right? I was like, there's no, like, she's just making this. This is like all, this isn't real. And once I sort of switched my perspective, it was this one dog, Misha, that particularly drove me crazy. And once I started treating Misha as if it was my brother having a nutty, all of a sudden perception opened. And I started noticing all the things my wife was seeing that was leading to her diagnosis. And it was literally, I was blind to it. So the stuff that makes animals more human-like and worthy of our empathy, we actually can't see until we start to develop that empathy for animals. It's, we're sort of blocked out from it. This is not surprising. This is like the same. This is a big version of like, if you've ever gone to a rainforest you show up and everything's green. You can't see a goddamn thing. You have no idea what you're looking at. And like a week later, your brain goes, oh, look, it's 700 different shades of green. <laughs> and that thing you thought was a tree is actually a snake, right? Like suddenly you start seeing like everything that is in front of you and the rainforest gets very freaky. <laughs> you're like snakes, insects, wait, everything wants to kill me. And it was totally visible to you. This is the same version of that sort of like times 10. So I, what I think starts with, if you really like are interested in just playing with this, you can run an experiment in your life and start thinking about the plants and animals around you as equals. Just start thinking about them as equals, run the experiment for a couple of weeks, see what happens to perception. So, I mean, like that's the, that's the practical answer. I mean, on a, on a macroscopic level, there's a, you know, a million things 
that need to happen. But I'm a fan of, you know, the establishment of uh, rewilding and mega linkages and giving huge portions of basically land back to plants and animals. Passion and purpose, Stephen, right? You, <laughs> you, you've written a fair bit about it and you, you talked about it pretty elegant. Massively transformative purpose. And you've, you kind of outlined three of them and we've talked a lot about the latter already. How do you get to a point when you really figure out what those three are? Yeah, so first of all, I have a tool for everybody that you guys could have. If you go to www.passionrecipe.com, Everything I'm about to say, which is also in Art Impossible, the book over your right shoulder, we this was so useful to so many people. We I was just like, let's give it. Like, I'm sick of answering this question. Let's turn it into <laughs> like free videos, free tutorials, free workbooks. And so that's what we did. And that's what's available at uh, passionrecipe.com. But the place to start is um, with a, just a couple of basic principles. Passion and purpose are examples of intrinsic motivation. There are tons of intrinsic motivators the way so okay we have two kinds of motivators we have extrinsic this is stuff in the real world we're going to work hard to get money sex fame and then we have intrinsic motivators and we have as i said tons of them spite is an intrinsic motivator right when you have coaches like bulletin board material right that's spite as a motivator well there are five really big ones curiosity passion purpose autonomy and mastery these are the most potent intrinsic motivators. And when I say most potent, what I really mean is they produce the most feel good neurochemistry that gets us up off the couch and chasing down our goals, right? Motivation is nothing more than energy for action. So the big deal here is twofold. One, each of these is designed to be built into the next. There's a sequence to how we evolve, they evolved to come online and people where people go wrong, especially today, and is that passion and purpose have taken on, there's a lot of virtue signaling around them. There's a lot of, they, they mean a lot more now than ever before. And there's a lot of social stuff that comes with it. Some really good, like, yes, we like your passion and purpose for the world. It's better for the world, but some of it is about feeding your ego and a bunch of that stuff, right? So it's, like, it's become very complicated and mystified and this is a very simple, like, what is it neurobiology? What is passion and purpose? It's, there's, these are things that humans do. So there's science underneath it. And quite simply, passion and purpose matter because we get more feel-good performance-enhancing neurochemistry out of them. It's very, very selfish from a performance standpoint. And it doesn't have to be so mystical once you sort of understand what you're trying to do. I'm not saying that like trying to feed the hungry is bad for the world, right? Or won't get you laid on Friday night when you talk about it in a bar, right? Like it's fine for those things too. But like from a performance standpoint, it matters because curiosity, the most foundational intrinsic motivator, what is it? It's a little bit of the feel-good neurochemical dopamine and a little bit of the performance enhancing neurochemical norepinephrine, right? That's what curiosity is. What is passion? Passion is nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities. One curiosity powerful motivator. How do you know? What do you get from curiosity? Focus for free. Think about how much energy you expend paying attention to stuff that you're not interested in and think about not spending any energy on things you're curious about. The brain uses 25% of all the body's energy at rest. We're trying to pay attention to something we're not interested in. It's a lot more. 
that's crazy. That's a three pound part of our 160 pound body. That's getting one quarter of everything we eat and drink at rest. And then more if we're trying to do something like pay attention to like a bad lecture or a dull book, right? Like a lot of energy. So anything that gives us focus for free, huge energy savings. That's great for peak performance, which requires lots of energy. Curiosity is a little bit of focus and energy for free. But if we can find where multiple curiosities intersect and how to do that is what's available in the passion recipe or in the book, but like figuring out where they intersect and what you get is passion. And passion is a lot of dopamine and a lot of norepinephrine. Passion, by the way, think about romantic love. You've fallen in love, how much attention you're paying to the person you're falling in love with. You can't stop thinking about them. That's literally dopamine and norepinephrine at work. That's the focus you're getting for free. And that's how motivated they are. You can't actually in the brain turn up norepinephrine or dopamine anymore. We know this, right? If you turn it up, you get obsession. And then actually you start getting mental illness. You get mania and schizophrenia. So there's a limit, right? There's a sweet spot for performance. But if you want more motivation, you need more feel-good drugs. Then once you have passion, intersection of multiple curiosities, you attach it to a something greater than yourself, just a problem in the world you want to see solved. I want to see animals treated like humans, right? That's a problem in the world I want to see solved. And it's outside of myself. Why does that matter? Because once something's not about you and it's beneficial to the world, you start, first of all, you get some attention for it. So other people start paying attention to you. That gives you oxytocin, but you also start getting endorphins and serotonin other pro-social neurochemicals that feel good and enhance motivation more. So the big deal with passion and purpose is huge amounts of feel-good neurochemistry, lots of motivation. So thinking of them big tasks and big goals, I think one of the best all capturing the statements I've seen from a book is you're capable of so much more than you know. The way I always, I always phrase that, there's three components here. And the way I always phrase it is, 30 years of studying peak human performance has taught me, you know, over and over again, we are all capable of so much more than we know. But the reason we don't know is because human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. So before we go talk about how capable we are, let's talk about what I mean by human potential is invisible because it's easier, it's quicker. One, we figure out what we're capable of by pushing on our skills to the utmost. That, first of all, produces flow, which massively up-levels our skills, and suddenly we're capable of a level of performance that we hadn't seen before, but we only do that, and we have to do that over and over and over again. That makes human potential an emergent property. It emerges by pushing on our skills to the utmost. You have, like all other emergent properties, right? You can't figure out what they are until they actually emerge. That's like how complexity science works. That's just the laws of science. Second of all, at a really granular, like simple level, and this isn't uh, my research, this is mostly Adam Grant's work, but he's figured out that we have no idea what we're going to like or be good at until we try it, right? And this means even in like closely related skills. So LeBron James, one of the greatest basketball players currently, you know, in the game, tremendous athlete, let's say LeBron's never played rugby. I could go to Braun and be like, LeBron, do you think you're going to like rugby? Do you think you're going to be good at rugby? And the research shows he can't answer the question. I mean, he thinks he's going to be able to answer the question. I'm an athlete. I'm going to know if I'm going to like this, right? But the study after study shows, no, we have no clue if we're going to like it, 
if we're going to be good at it until after we do it, and until we do it and start pushing on our skills to the utmost, we don't really know what we can actually even do with it. And the last part is the what we're capable of. That answer comes down to a bunch of stuff, but it really comes down to everybody's hardwired for flow. It's foundational property of all uh, most mammals and all humans, right? So anybody anywhere can get into flow, flow provided certain initial conditions are met. That's extremely well-established, the universality and flow is optimal performance. It's a huge uptick in motivation, grit, productivity, creativity, learning, and a bunch of physical skills, right? Huge. Uh, the numbers, as, as you know, from reading our impossible are staggering. They're 500% above baseline for productivity, 400 to 700% boost in innovation uh, and creativity and flip and so forth. These enormous, you know, heightened states of creativity that's available to all of us and just simply by being human. So if we're talking about hey, you don't know what you're good at. You don't know what you're going to like. You don't know how far you can take it. And by the way, the state of peak performance that like is going to help you take it there, it's not about 5% better or 10% better. It's a step function worth of change that's at your disposal. So when I say human beings are all, if we can figure out how to spend time and flow on a regular basis. There's also, as you know, from reading Art Impossible, there's other skills. We've been talking about motivation skills. There's learning skills and creativity skills that you also have to work on with flow. But that's essentially the full suite of cognitive peak performance from a biological perspective. And this is available to all of us. It comes built in. We're human beings. Like all this stuff is, is in us and it's in most mammals and definitely all dogs. By the way, some of this stuff is oddly creepily in plants. So like just as a weird, just weird stuff, plant neuroscience is a really hot field right now. They now know that plants exhibit empathy and practice altruism. They process information with all the same neurochemicals that humans do. So serotonin, dopamine, all these chemicals, we've done, they also show up in plants on and on. There's, so there's a bunch of really weird stuff that makes you go, whoa. <laughs> okay. You know, I just heard Steven make a really coherent argument about like dog consciousness, but like I've been to like there's a bunch of really cool researchers. You most of them are in Italy, oddly, um, who are all working on plant neuroscience, a bunch of neuroscientists who are doing really neat stuff with plants in Italy. I've heard them lecture a bunch of times when I've been in Europe and, you know, there's literally like you can, ex there's grounds to extend the argument for consciousness and, you know, things like this into, you know, into the plant kingdom, which makes you, certainly makes you like sort of just raises your eyebrows, right? Not saying we should make any decisions perhaps, but it definitely raises your eyebrows. <laughs> with, with all the books you've published, Stephen, right? And, you know, two Pulitzer nominations, bestsellers, New York Times, we, we don't have to name all the books. Everyone knows what the books are. How do you keep on finding the next book to write so one is how do you cultivate curiosity is the same way you find the intersection of multiple curiosities right when i say curiosity right people again they get all mystical i just mean like this is interesting enough to you that you would spend if, if, if i could pause time you would spend a weekend studying up on this you'd watch a couple lectures read a couple books, talk to an expert or two, maybe play around, run a little experiment. That's all I mean by curious. Like you're willing to give it two or three days of your life because you'd like to know a little bit more. I don't ever, like there's a bunch of stuff I was curious about early on and I've never stopped feeding it, right? I never stopped feeding my curiosity, mostly through books, 
Now, that's what books are so great for is they constantly feed curiosity. How do you feed curiosity? You find links, but you make associative memories, right? You find links between, oh, this thing leads to this thing leads to them. Even if you don't think that this is the foundational seeds of pattern recognition and creativity. So if you want more creativity and innovation, this is sort of how that works. And it's also neuroprotective later in life. Right, what like we are almost all of our cognitive skills are use it or lose it, and you know, can, lifelong learning is you know cognitive skills start to decline in your fifties, and dementia is common in your seventies, and the only thing that guards against it is creating new neurons and creating new associative networks, and you can't do that if you don't keep learning. So, short short argument for books. It's just for everyone listening that like you just wrote a blog on differences between novices and experts and it's about the lifelong learning and even you have the ROI reading chapter so it's yeah there's a lot to be said for peeking into curiosity and keep, keep reading right but yeah I've never I've never stopped feeding those curiosities so you know as soon as like two things that happen people don't realize this but if you're if you're a good communicator if you care about communicating information and obviously you know I really do right I like to teach people about really hard ideas that I think, you know, everybody can learn. You know what I mean? I like, I, I think the ideas are hard, but there's a way that everybody can learn them and we can all benefit from them. So that's, I try to do that. If you're going to write those uh, kinds of books, you end up, you never write the book about the shit you're curious about. You write the book about all the things you learn along the way. So like I'm for, I'll give you a simple example. Almost every book I've written up till now, including the art of impossible is literally basic peak performance. I have yet, the book I'm working on now on peak performance aging is the very first advanced applied peak performance applied neuroscientist book I've ever tried to write because to can like the basics, literally I have six books on flow and peak performance. That's the basics. So one reason you want it, you keep writing the next one is because you never get to write the goddamn book you are curious about, right? Because when you start writing that book, you're like, oh, before I can tell you that, I got to tell you this and this and this. And by the time I told you this, this and this, you're so freaking bored with the neuroscience or whatever. The thing that I really care about, there's no room in the book. Like if I were to put that stuff in, nobody would read my books. They'd be boring. Take having the, having sort of the um, it's difficult, but it, it, it's what allows you to be a better communicator. I don't, and cause I, it's not that I don't, and other, some people dumb things down, right? That's how they solve this. I don't ever want to dumb it down. I just have, can't tell the whole story. So I tell the story I can tell as richly as I possibly can. And then I save the stuff for an next book. Right. And, you know, essentially, by the way, if you go through my first book on peak performance, which is West to Jesus, and you then read literally uh, small furry prayer, stealing fire, rise of Superman and art impossible. All of the ideas in all of those books are introduced in West of Jesus. Every one of them is in West of Jesus. It just took literally five, each of those books was a chunk of that, that I wanted to, that I had to do shorthand. So that, that keeps me going a lot. And uh, also, you have to give the honest answer. It's not so good up here. And if I'm not writing, it's really bad up here, right? <laughs> writing is sort of like Prozac for me in a sense. And much in the way that like skiing, skiing and writing are the two things that I have to do to sort of say, stay sane. I think this is, you know, common to most 
creatives, right? If, if you're a true creative, your, your art, whatever that is, is always your salvation. And I always say one of the reasons that I'm really, I'm good at my job and I'm successful is I learned how to first turn pain into words. And then I learned how to turn all the other emotions into words. And, um, and I like doing it, right? It's also, it's how I think. I'm smarter when I write in the way that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids are better when they move. I'm better when I write. Then going back, we're doing a reflection on what you've been through, the curiosities that you've had. Was there ever a moment when one of the accolades or someone said something to you, or even you looking back over your work to date, that you were so grateful that that curiosity was in you for writing these books? Uh, so, uh, so this is a funny answer, because as a general rule, when people come up to me and say anything, first of all, I'm an introvert, so I don't like people. So if you're <laughs> going to come up to me um, in the first place, that's oh weird, gosh. right? <laughs> Second of all, when people come up to me and say, oh, thank you so much. Your work changed my life. It did this, it did this. I always, I'm always hesitant. And I'm like, thank you. Maybe you changed your life. And I sort of like, and you were ready to change. My book came along and it bridged something. But I think there are a bunch of other books, movies, films, conversations, sexual escapades, whatever that could have same bridge. That might not be true, but that tends to be what my brain thinks and how I tend to think about that. Or as my wife says, she's the most cynical woman in the world when it comes to this. Uh, she's like, dude, think about somebody walking up to the, oh, you're my favorite rock star. And it's true. You're my favorite rock star, except for this one and this one and this one and this one and that one. And depends on the day and on Tuesdays before noon, you're definitely my, right. Like that's the reality. We all know that. So there's a grain of that. But the one thing I was, uh, it was a world business forum event in Italy, I want to say. I think I was in Milan or Perugia. I can't remember. It was a big, huge conference. And first of all, I, one, one of the things that was shocking to me is I, it was the first time I had worked a little bit in Italy doing some reporting earlier on, but I hadn't been back to Italy in 20 years. And it turns out that I've got a lot of fans in Italy. And the reason I know this is because when I was signing books after the event, the line like wrapped around essentially a Coliseum. And I sat there for like, you know, and if you're going to wait in line, I'm going to sign your book. And people say very nice things to you along the way. And at the end of the line, like literally so for two hours, I'm watching this girl get closer is a girl who doesn't stop crying for two hours and she's young. She's like 19, 20 years old and she's coming closer. She's still, she's not sobbing, but she's weeping. And I, as the introvert, am going, oh shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what is this? Really? Like, wow, you've been crying for a long time. And she gets up and she finally, she starts talking to me and she looks at me and she goes, I just have to thank you. And I said, is it okay? Why? She's crying. She's like, you got me through high school. And it was the one thing anybody's ever said to me where I went, holy shit. Cause like I had a bad time in high school. I didn't like high school at all. And there were a couple of authors who saved my life and got me through high school. And I wouldn't, I literally would be dead today without those authors, without a doubt. And I don't know if that's what she meant, but that's sure what it felt like. And that was something where I was like, oh, you got me. You found the one thing that is so relatable to me that like you pierced all my asshole shells and you like you found my heart crying for two hours. You goddamn, you know. Yeah, she got me. Oh. One of the last ones for me, Steve. I'm curious as to we're always how would you give your all to all the things you're really interested and passionate about? You want to 
push on flow science. You've got Flow Research Collective. You want to write another book. You want to ski. You want to change the world for animals. All those yeah, things. I, so it's, it's interesting because I've always said, I guess there's three or four answers to that question, but it's really about filtering and choices. I've uh, Peak performance is a checklist. It's nothing more than I'm going to do these. It's like there's certain things you have to do every day. You have to do certain things for flow. You need a 90-minute block for intense concentration on your hardest test. You're going to need some way of down-regulating the nervous system, mindfulness, or a long walk in nature, you know, because you've got to stay calm. There's a handful of other things. It's not a ton. What I say is there's, I have three, my massively transformative purpose, as you, as you could point out, there's three things I care about. I want to write great books. I want to make the world a better place for animals. And I want to advance flow science and training. And to me, it's really simple. I do one of those things every day, no matter what right? Like every day on my checklist, I am going to always do something that makes the world a better place for animals. Even if it's not, that's one of the reasons there's a dog sanctuary in my damn house is because if I can't, you know, go out into the world and make a bigger difference, I make like, there's a, you know, I'm running a dog sanctuary with my wife out of my home. So I'm always doing that work. That's always taken care of. I wake up and I start writing. I'm always doing that work and advancing flow science and research. You know, some days it means I'm doing nothing more than, you know, reading a couple new papers on flow or reading a bunch of neuroscience textbooks. Some days I'm running, you know what I mean? Like I just chunk it down. So I, cause that's all like, all I could ever do is what I can do. I know in any given day, I can do about nine things. I have the energy to do nine things and be great at those nine things. And I know I got to have a active recovery thing. So like if I have to go get in the sauna for 45 minutes, that takes energy. That's tiring, right? It's or a long walk in nature or a long mindfulness. Those are things that are going to require energy. So I like even my recovery, I have to like, that's an item on my to-do list, like the morning writings, et cetera, et cetera. So I just make sure that every day, three of the things on my to-do list, check off those needs. And then I sort of filter down from that. And I say, okay, I've got these three big things. I only do six things in my life, period. I, you know, the three, I advance those three goals. I spend time with friends and family. I do all the business stuff I have to do to make way for those three things. And then I hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. Like that's it. If I'm not, if, the, if it's outside of those things, it's a no. And the last level of filtering that I like, and this is one that people don't talk about a lot, but I think and it's, it's a little weird to do. It certainly prioritizes your life differently, but it's worth making a list of your 10 greatest pleasures. I mean, I'm talking pure hedonism. What are your 10 greatest pleasures? The 10 things that bring you just the most joy, pleasure, happiness, whatever. Why would you work for 11, 12, 13, 14, or any of that? Like if you've got a top 10, first of all, you've got a whole bunch of shit you now say no to because why would you say yes to that stuff when you can go after your top 10 pleasures first of all and the second thing like i'll give you an example when i made my list i realized that like literally sitting and laughing with my best friend was super close it was arguable one two or three were variable i was like oh shit and we live four hours apart and you know we talk all the time and i work with him but do I actually like, do we go out of our way to spend time together when it's inconvenient? Not as much as we should. And yet number one on my list was laughing with my best friend. Well, that's crazy. What am I doing? 
right? My favorite pleasure in life is four hours away, but I'm too bit like that's stupid because the buyback, what I get back from my life, the quality of like the richness of the experience is, is huge. So I also think you want to filter both ways. You want to filter like, this is my passion, my purpose, my mission. And so this is the things I'm going to say yes to, but also take a look at like the stuff that we're not supposed to want because it's bad for, right? Like everything, but we're going to still go after hedonic pleasures because we're human anyways. Let's just make sure that the right hedonic pleasures for who we are. That's sort of how I try to think about those. Those are the strategies I try to bring to that problem. It's excellent. We'll be making the list later on today. The book is out. It's doing really well. Where would you like people to go? I know you're giving away on the art of possible.com. There's $1,500 worth of extra peak performance tools. There's uh, things about Stephen Kotler that I don't seem to have any control of anymore. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even sure. Um, I'm not, I'm somewhere between a brand and a simulation, and I'm not sure which it is. <laughs> Is this the simulation? I hope this is the, <laughs> this is the real deal here. My wife literally had a t-shirt printed up. She showed it to me yesterday. I was like, does that really say what I thought I said? She said, this is not a t-shirt. This is an elaborate hoax. <laughs> <laughs> she's like she she fully gotcha. is out of simulation theory gotcha. she's yeah. like she i'm like okay well you sort of i i can't it's hard to argue with nick bostrom right like he, <laughs> the simulation theory sort of wins you're like well i don't know how i approve a negative but like you're right i live in a simulation pass the popcorn exactly <laughs> Stephen. look this conversation is all about piquing people's curiosity and interest and getting people to just check out your stuff a little bit more. And we wanted to dig in and ask some questions. We have only one yeah, more for you. Gentlemen, I really appreciate you guys really taking the time to ask a bunch of questions that other people don't ask me. And I'd like that. I know that takes some research and some effort on your end. So I, and I really appreciate it. One more and then we're done. We always ask everyone that comes on the show. You've been there 30 years running the show peak performance. What does high performance peak performance look like for Stephen Kotler? That's interesting because I don't, it, the, the, I think the major point I've been trying to make in a lot of my work is that it doesn't actually, well, there's individual personality shape things at a real level. Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And that biology on the physical side, it's strength, stamina, fast twitch, muscle response, balance, and agility. And on the mental side, it's motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. And that's literally like, those are all the tools we have at our disposable disposal. Like, so that is one way or another, whatever you're doing, that's the suite of tools. So I like at a high level, I know this is not the exact answer to the question you wanted, <laughs> but like, I think it's important because there's no difference. Like it's all of us. It looks the same for at that level looks the same for all of us, which is why, like, I don't think there's a mystery and I think we're all capable of more than we know. So, okay. Soapbox sermon over and i don't have another answer to your question peak i mean i it's my checklist i told you what i do all day uh, peak performance is doing it today tomorrow the next day the next day the next day the next day for years like that's the equation hard work works but smart hard work works better thanks for educating us and further on the message of peak performance Stephen. appreciate your time really grateful for it thanks guys fun hanging out with you thanks for you too Steve. Cheers, Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. 
others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.